Hello, I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and welcome to a very special episode of Time to Talk. This week, our guest is Alice Cooper, the legendary Alice Cooper. I first interviewed Alice uh, way back when. I think Trash had just come out. It was 1989. And I remember thinking at the time that this must be like a comeback for Alice, but he's never been away. What's more, with his new album, Detroit Stories, he's topped the album charts all over the world. Today, we talked about how Detroit is a rock and roll city and how that city inspired this album. The remaining members of the original Alice Cooper band appear on it, and he talks about that relationship. And apart from being at the centre of a fascinating rock and roll story, Alice has had some extraordinary interactions with some remarkable people. You know, I kind of defy you today to find another podcast where one man can relate first-person stories about everybody from Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Lou Reed, Salvador Dali, and more. It was such a blast to talk to Alice. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating. It really helps get time to talk in front of more people. But for now, here he is, Alice Cooper. Alice, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. I'm so pleased you could join us. I, I assume you're at home in Detroit? Actually, no, I'm in Phoenix. I'm in Arizona. Um, I was born in Detroit, left there when I was 10 years old because I had asthma. I had to get out of that cold climate. Um, and then came back, went back there with the band in 1970. Yeah. And uh, and uh, no, I, I I still live in Arizona. We have a place here in Arizona, one in Maui. But uh, I spend 90% of my time. Well, actually, I spend maybe 70% of my time on the road most of the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> until this very strange year. Yeah, this you, was, you know, this was a year that beats all. Yeah. You, you know, when I think of. Uh, Detroit, I think of obviously rock music, Motown and cars. And I, I couldn't believe that I read recently that you own a replica bullet Mustang. I do. It's a brand. It's what it is. It's a, it's the, it's a perfect replica, except that underneath it's a brand new Mustang. It's got a coyote engine, a 500 horsepower coyote engine in it and everything's brand new on it. But if you look at it, it's identical to the, you know, to the bullet car. It only took about a year, year and a half to build, but it's it's literally perfect. That's incredible. Did this love of automobiles come from growing up in Detroit? You know, I think it's in your DNA. Uh, my dad sold used cars, and my mom and dad both worked in the factories back in you know in the forties, and so it was like everybody in Detroit, which which does kind of explain the music a little bit. Um, you know, uh, people work in these factories with these giant machines that are just making these gigantic noises all the time. Detroit is not a sophisticated city like LA or Detroit or, or New York or San Francisco, New Orleans, you know. So you're getting the Midwest and you're getting people that are sort of no BS in your face kind of people. And they yeah. want their music like that. They kind of don't, they want their music to be aggressive. They want their bands to be unapologetic. They want, you know, and that was exactly where we fit in. I mean, that was just perfect for us. You know, we, we got there and we met these Iggy and the Stooges and the MC5 and Bob Seger and Ted Nugent and, you know, Susie Quattro and everybody. And we that was our home. We didn't fit in L.A. We didn't fit in San Francisco or New York. Detroit was where Alice Cooper belonged. So, as you said, you moved away from Detroit when you were 10. Then when you went back there, did you stay housed in Detroit when Alice Cooper was taking off the band? Yeah, we had a we had a house in uh, Detroit and we lived there for quite a while. Um, and then when Love It to Death came out, I kind of look at Love It to Death as being our first real Alice Cooper album, because mm -hmm. the first two albums with Frank Zappa were more of songs that we wrote when we were the Spiders and the Naz. And yeah. then when we, we became Alice Cooper, 
it was like one of those things where um, then we got with Bob Ezrin in Detroit and we started writing this whole new sound. Bob, Bob said, he says, why is it that when you hear the doors, you know, it's the doors. Why is it when you hear the stones, you know, it's the stones. They all have signature sounds. They have an identity. He says, that's one thing you guys have a physical identity, but you don't have a musical identity. So we spent a year, you know, 10 hours a day in Detroit. And the result of that was Love It to Death with 18 and Dwight Fry and all those songs. And now when you heard it, you went, oh, that's Alice Cooper. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. what Bob gave us. He was our George Martin. You know, it's, it's interesting with Bob because Bob's back for the new album, Detroit Stories. Did Bob have much of a history before he started working with you? No, we were his first album. We were That's the, unbelievable. his very first album. And then Love It to Death, Killer, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies. Those four albums in a row were all platinum albums. So he started out with a home run and just kept hitting <laughs> runs. And uh, But he was exactly what we needed. He was a guy that we actually would listen. We didn't listen to Frank Zappa. You know, mm -hmm. um, because Frank didn't really want us to be a commercial success. Frank right. more or less wanted us as a freak act, you know, and we had much bigger aspirations than that. So when we got with Ezra and we, he said, what do you want? I said, we want to be as big as the Yardbirds or the Who. And that's what we went for. You know, he could take one of our songs that was complicated and and just keep paring it down till it was simple mm -hmm. and powerful. Like 18, you know, was a simple, powerful song and it and it suddenly got on the charts and it was like going crazy and and then it was just a series after single after single after single so bob was our george martin yeah it's interesting listening to the new album that um it sounds like a classic alice cooper record and your voice you sound like you're 30 how do you do it <laughs> you know it's funny i i one one thing i had to look at it and see why <laughs> i quit drinking 38 years ago uh, yeah. doing drugs and and, and drinking uh, I never smoked cigarettes, which has a lot to do with it. Uh, yeah. And uh, I always, my, my vocals are basically mid-range. I don't try to do the Steven Tyler way, way up there. And I've, yeah. got, I've got, you know, singers in my band that can hit all those notes. I can hit those notes, but if I hit them all the time, it, you would wear your voice out. And I don't yeah. go way low. So my, my songs are, a lot of them are right in the rock and roll middle range. And that, and that, world i can i can really create good stuff i can hit notes and i can you know make them work um and i think that has a lot to do with it and i've never really lost my interest i've never yeah. lost interest in rock and roll i've always i've always thought i haven't written my best song yet that's amazing yeah it's it's interesting you talk about going to detroit and the mc5 are happening Iggy and the stooges are happening you guys were obviously all developing your thing in isolation before you became aware of them. Right. And I wondered, uh, what was the big bang for you? Was it Elvis? Was it the Beatles? What was the thing that set you alight as a kid? Well, Elvis was first when I was seven you know, years old. I saw him on Ed Sullivan. I immediately went in my room and started imitating him because I was a natural mimic. That's what I did. And I had a pretty good sense of humor when I was seven years old, too. So, I mean, that was, that was something that was always with me. <laughs> uh, I was laughing at things the adults were laughing at, and they couldn't figure out why I got it, you know. Uh, yeah. But um, it, it was Chuck Berry. Uh, my, my, my uncle brought, he says, do you like Elvis Presley? And I went, yeah. And he says, then you're going to love this. And he puts on Chuck Berry. And it was the first time I ever heard a record that was driven by electric guitar. Yeah. 
uh, you know, da 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 but I got to find guitar players and I've got to find a bass player and, a, you know, and, and it happened to be all my best friends, you know, ended up being in the original band. And, and the original band reconvened for Hate You, don't they, on the new oh, record? Yeah. And, and uh, um, Social Debris. Yeah, right. They, they played live on that, but they've been on my last four albums. My yeah. original band's been on my last four albums. And, and the thing about I Hate You is this, when a band breaks up, it's generally they hate each other. They can't talk to each other. The ego problems, there's money problems, there's girl problems, all that. Yeah. When we broke up, it was just because that we ran out of ideas. And we, 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 we worked for about six years there without taking a break. Yeah. And it, we just finally wore out. And we didn't divorce as much as we just separated. We just kind of went our own ways. And so we, there was never bad blood. There was no lawyers. There was no anything yeah. like that. Everybody just kind of drifted off. So we always stayed in touch. And we did this song, I Hate You, because, you know, people assume that when you break up, you hate each other. So we said, no, let's just roast each other. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I said, I was really talking about Mike. Mike, you write a, song, a thing about Dennis. Dennis, you do a thing about Neil or me, you know, and. And it was really more of a nod to Glenn, who passed away. Yes. Glenn Buxton was our Keith Richards. He was literally unreplaceable. Nobody yes. played. The only person that played like Glenn was Sid Barrett. You know, they, those two were best, were, were friends because they played such weird, they just echoplexes and things like that. Uh, and you could not replace that. Glenn played like no other person. You, you've really had an amazing... Um situation where you've been the center of something very special, Alice Cooper, and then you've also been able to witness a lot of special things too. So I was reading, preparing for this interview, when you guys were kicking off, you're, you're playing with bands like The Who, The Small Faces, uh, Fleetwood Mac, and you said you couldn't play soft rock. You had to go out there and bring it. Yeah, that was Detroit. I mean, you if, if you were in Detroit, you couldn't be like, you know, Seals and Croft. <laughs> you couldn't be... You know, a, a sweet little band that goes in there and, and sings sweet little songs because Detroit would just kill you. You know, uh, they want bands that's literally in their face and with a lot a touch of anger and a touch of violence up there, you know, uh, and then they relate to that. And they went and, and that was perfect for us because that's what we were doing anyways. We scared the hell out of Los Angeles. You know, people were running <laughs> the doors because they were they were all on on LSD. And all the bands were groovy, you know, and here comes Alice Cooper. We come on and uplighting and we look like demented clowns, you know, in drag yeah. somehow. And and we didn't mind a little real blood on stage. So <laughs> it really did terrify people, you know. Uh, so we, we didn't we only found that audience when we got to Detroit. <laughs> did you know Jim Morrison personally? Oh, yeah. Jim and I were good friends. We, we opened for the doors for a while. And so oh, wow. Robbie, Robbie and I are still, we still do a lot of things together. Robbie Krager. Uh, well, I think Robbie's on the record, isn't he? I think. Uh, Robbie, yeah. Robbie plays, uh, well, he played on the Vampires record. Oh, the Vampires record. Uh, but, you know, Robbie and I have done 
when when there's a charity thing to do and Robbie comes up to play, I go up and do Jim Morrison. I do four or five songs, you know. Yeah. And I can yeah. I can do a good Jim Morrison. <laughs> well, well you know, I've heard, I've heard the Vampires record is a fantastic album. Thank you. You know, and Paul McCartney doing Come and Get It on there. Oh, and, how, that uh, was so much fun. I can, I got to tell you this story about that. We're standing there, Joe Walsh, you know, Joe Perry, uh, Johnny, myself, uh, uh, Abe from McCartney's band was playing drums, I think. And yeah. um, we're, you know, we're in, the, in uh, Johnny's uh, studio and we're, pl- we're playing and playing and playing and McCartney walks in. Now, we all know McCartney, you know, as, as, as a friend. But he come, walks in, sits down at the piano, and he says, okay. He says, um, I wrote this song for Badfinger. You guys ought to do this. If you want it, anytime. So, you know, we're like, as soon as he turned around to the piano, we're all like, we're, all of us are going, yes. And as soon as he turns around, of course, we're like, oh, yeah, man, cool. You know? So we did the song in two takes. Because the band was so good. I mean, the band could pick it up easily. And McCartney, you know, I sang uh, all the high parts and he sang the, the, the lead on it. And it turned out perfect, you know, and we just let him go on playing the piano and doing all this stuff. And uh, it's one thing to know Paul McCartney, one, another thing to be in the studio with the very yeah. person that made you want to be in a band. You know what I mean? That was the very you know, center of, of rock and roll to us was Paul McCartney and John Lennon. So that was really an amazing experience. And John and Paul's the nicest human being on the planet. You know, he could not be nicer. Well, well the track is great. And I love your version of Elna Rigby too, which you did a while ago. Well, that was surprised me. You know, that one surprised me because, you know, uh, well, I think Paul came in and he listened to some of the sessions of Vampires and he was a little surprised that I was doing all the lead singing because, you know, yeah. and I think he heard at that point when this thing came out, um, you know, I said, what songs do they want me to do? I figured they want me to do Helder Skelter or I'm Down or something like that. And he said, no, no, uh, Ellen Rigby. <laughs> that's one song that you don't mess around with. Yeah. That's that's like yesterday. That's like Michelle. You yeah. know, that's like one of those songs that you just kind of say, well, wait a minute. That song's up on a pedestal, you know. And I said, really? Really? And he, yeah, you can do this. And so we did it. And uh I did my best Paul McCartney on that one. <laughs> you, you did a great job. It, it, it's interesting. It's interesting, Alice, because obviously there was a point there where you were hard rocking. Then you did a few ballads, and I love you and me. It's great, just one of my favorites. But I know that you knew people like Sinatra, and you met Elvis. Did you guys ever talk about singing and about how to approach a song? You know, it's funny. Uh, Sinatra had a, a, a great, a great thing. He came in, and um, I did a favor for him. And it was, I got one of his best friend's son into a baseball game. And I just did it because the kid was wanting to get in the game. Next thing I know, I owe you one. And I went, wow, you know, (laughs) Mr. Sinatra, you don't owe me anything. He's call me Frank. Okay. So now, you know, he, I get a call and here's two tickets to the Hollywood Bowl. And it's for me and Bernie Toppin. And so Bernie and I get there and we're sitting down and the guy pokes me and says, Hey, the boss wants to see you. So we go backstage and there's Frank, you know, he's got his tux on, he's got a martini and a cigarette, you know, I'm going to do one of your songs tonight. And that's how he was paying me back, you know, for this thing. And I went, Oh man, really? I'm trying to picture him doing schools out or I love the dead or something like that. And he goes, no, no, I'm doing you and me. 
And, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. And he did uh, your song, I think, that night, too, for Bernie. And, uh, you know, he only did it once, but that was, it. he said, it's a good, you know, and I said, well, thank you, man. He says, hey, kid, you keep writing them, I'll keep singing them. <laughs> wow. How fantastic. And, and what about uh, Elvis? Was that a Vegas uh, catch up there? Yeah, Elvis was great. Elvis was really, uh, you know, it was when Elvis was Elvis. He mm. wasn't. He wasn't fat Elvis. He wasn't drugged Elvis. He wasn't. He was Elvis. It was 1971, I think it was. So, there, you know, uh, I go up to his uh, up, up, uh, his suite up at the Hilton, and it's me, Liza Minnelli, Chubby Checker, and Linda Lovelace. Okay, that's the four that go up there. And when he walks in the room, I mean, he is the room. You know, he's Elvis. Hey, man. Yeah. You're the cat with a snake, right? Yeah. He said, I dig that, man. That's cool. You got the makeup on. That's really, really hip, man. Dig your song. Dig your sound. And then he said, you're from uh, Detroit, right? And I went, yeah. And he said, well, come on in here. I want to show you something. So I go in the kitchen, opens up a drawer, hands me a loaded Smith & Wesson 38. Wow. Little snub nose 38. And so, you know, being from Detroit, I start to unload it. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, don't worry about that, man. And he says, I'm going to show you how to take a gun out of somebody's hand. So I'm standing there with a loaded gun on Elvis Presley. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, if I just shot him in the leg, you know, oh, you know what? that would be like forever, the greatest story in rock and roll. <laughs> you know, and by that time, the gun's out of my hand. I'm on the floor. His boot is in my throat. You know, hey, man, that's great, Elvis. Can't get up now. Great. But I really, I really liked him. And he was, you know, he was a very self-deprecating, you know. He would say like, uh, hey, man, something wrong with my lip. I don't know what's wrong with my lip, man. You know. I mean, funny guy, but I, he was a total prisoner of being Elvis Presley. He couldn't, he couldn't leave, you know, he couldn't go play pool. He couldn't go out and, uh, you know, go to a movie, couldn't go to dinner. You know, he always had to have these 14 guys from Memphis with him. And, you know, I mean, honestly, he would, if you take anybody, if I, if, if I told you, I'm going to put you in the nicest mansion on this planet. And you can have anything you want, any sexually, food, drugs, whatever yeah. you want, but you can't leave the mansion. You will find a way to kill yourself. Yeah. You'll either yeah, eat yourself to death or you'll be playing around with guns and shoot yourself or you'll drug out, you know, or somehow you will find a way to kill yourself because it's the most unnatural state in the world to be imprisoned. You're literally in jail. And that was his life. He was in jail. Did you take a signal from that with your own career that I can't be Alice Cooper 24 hours a day? Absolutely. I, I separated the two characters, even though, but I also said, I am going to be public. The public owns me. When I go out, if somebody wants an autograph, they get it. If somebody wants a picture with their family, absolutely. No problem at all. That way you can literally flow through the world. And I would leave Alice on stage, the character, you know, uh, he's the villain of rock and roll. He doesn't want to live in this world that we're in. He, he lives up there yeah. on stage. So as soon as the show's over, Alice stays on stage. And I, but I lead my life, you know? Yeah. And to me, that, the, that, that separation was really important. And I referred to Alice in the third person all the time. I go, yeah. wait a minute, Alice wouldn't, wouldn't wear that, no. Or Bob, wow. Ezrin, Bob, Bob Ezrin and I will sit there and go, we listen back and go, wait a minute, Alice wouldn't say that, would he? No, no, Alice wouldn't say that. Because we can be 
we could be very objection, uh, uh, you know, yeah. a really objective thing with him because he's my favorite rock star. Yeah. So I get to play my favorite rock star. Fantastic. You, you know, Alice, it's it's amazing. I've seen like a thousand shows, maybe more. The greatest moment of any show I've ever seen is in Brisbane. I know you do it every night when you play. You got up on the foldback speaker. It's the end of the night. The whole place is going crazy. You do schools out. You take off the top hat. You throw it. The drummer catches it on the stick. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know how you do that. I don't want to know. It's like rock and roll's greatest magic trick. We're all. We're actually about eight out of ten. You know, and, and here's the funny thing about that. You know, we're, 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 our show is a bit of like dark vaudeville, you know, dark comedy up there. And I found that if I threw the hat up there and he missed it, mm. get the hat, throw it up again. He misses it again. On the third time, if he catches it, everybody goes crazy. <laughs> it's actually better to miss it and get it the third time. The third time always works, and he catches it on the third time. The audience is so happy. They, they walk away, they're going, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I remember seeing Jerry Lewis once, and he told a, a gag and was supposed to catch a cane, yeah. and Jerry Lewis missed the cane. Yeah. So he had to tell another gag. He ended up telling like 50 gags till he finally caught the cane. So the whole place was just going nuts. Exactly. Then they start thinking, oh, it's part of the gets. I get it. That's part yeah. of the show. And, and it is. You make it part of the show. Yeah, you know, when you have as many moving parts as we do, yeah, it's really easy to have spinal tap moments up there. You know, yeah, where this doesn't work and that doesn't work, and and at that moment when you realize that you just blew it in front of ten thousand people, <laughs> you've got to do, you've got to go Clouseau on them. You know, you've got to be <laughs> Inspector Clouseau at that point and kind of pretend it didn't happen <laughs> and kind of kick it around over the side. And for me, there's nothing funnier than like a villain, a really, really, you know, condescending, arrogant villain blowing yeah. it and then having yeah. to recover. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, the new record, I mean, congratulations. It's top five all over the Western world. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Number one on Billboard. Uh, it's debuted at number one. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That's top five here in Australia. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, how long did it take to record the record? And I hear you're halfway through another one now. Well, you know, uh, we had such a great band there. I had Wayne Kramer. I had mm. Johnny B from Mitch Ryder. I had uh, Mark Farner, you know. Uh, I had all these great players in there. And we decided when we got it in there that this we can't do this album like Welcome to My Nightmare, uh, which is layered upon layered and produced and, you know, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody kind of production. I said, this needs to be live. This band is so good. We, we have to have, they have to play live. And that made it go really quick because we would just teach them the song and then second take, they had it, you know? And so all I had to do then was put the vocal on top of that. I did a work vocal while they were doing the song, you hmm. know, but to get them to know where we were and where all the parts were and everything. But these guys nailed it you know, like on the second, third take. And and then it was just picking the one with the best feel on it. So that yeah. most of that album is live in the studio. Go Man Go is a killer track. <laughs> yeah, Go Man Go is, you know, a character that I figured, well, you know, here's a guy, the Hamtramck Hammer, and he's picking up his painkiller Jane, his girlfriend, and he gets out of jail, steals a Hellcat, you know, uh, a, a Chrysler, I mean, a, a Dodge Hellcat. And they try to outrun the cops and a train. 
And, and he keeps going. I, I could step on the gas or put on the brakes. And she goes, no, go, man, go. You know, and it's a, you know, it's kind of punk. It's kind of uh, rockabilly a little bit, but that's part of Detroit. You right, know, lyrics? Yeah, Detroit is just that. That's what that's about. $1,000 high heel shoes. We had to tip our hat to Motown. Mm. So I brought in the horns. We brought in the girls, you know, Sister Sledge singing on it. And that wow. song ended up being a pure Motown song. Obviously, most of the album's original material you've written. Um, yeah. There's th a couple of covers on there too. Uh, Velvet Underground, which yeah. is a great opener. Yeah. Rock and Roll, they did the MC5 with Sister Anne and Bob Seger. Yeah. How did you go about selecting those songs to cover? Those things were important to us because of the fact that we wanted to, first of all, um, Lou Reed and I were friends way back in Chelsea Hotel days in New York City. So I knew the underground, the Velvet Underground back then. When I heard that song, and Bob also produced two of his albums. So, you know, there was a connection there with, with, with Lou. And it was, it was a tribute to him. You know, Lou was a very cool guy. But the, their version of that song was sort of New York heroin chic. You know, then in just five years old, there was nothing going on at all. You know, that kind of throwaway. And it was cool. That's the way the Velvet Underground should sound. Yeah. But I said, why don't we take that song to Detroit and put a V8 engine in it, you know, and turn it into a hot rod, turn it into yeah. a real, just a monster rock song. We'll put Joe Bonamassa on it and Steve Hunter and, you know, we'll just fill this thing with gunslingers, you know, and, and make it just kill. And when we heard it, we just went, that's the opening track. Yeah, absolutely. And Lou would not have minded that I changed New York to Detroit. Now, didn't he give you advice on your golf? Well, I gave him advice. I, you know, oh. I saw him years later, years later. And I walked into it when I was like Grammys or something and he backstage and he's sitting there and I went, Lou. And he goes, oh, hey, Alice, how are you doing? He says, hey, uh. I'm pushing the ball to the right, you know, and first, this is the first I'd ever heard that he even played golf. And I went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and he says, yeah, I, I, I keep pushing. I said, well, I said, you got to relax your right hand so you can, so the ball will turn over, you know, just relax your right hand, firm with your left hand, relaxed right hand, and your, your club head will turn over and you'll start hitting it straight or even to the left. Oh, okay, good, good idea. And then I said, would we have been having this conversation at the Chelsea Hotel? <laughs> no, not at all. Neither one of us was thinking about golf at that point. Iggy plays, Dylan plays, Neil Young plays. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of people play golf that you don't realize. And Glenn Campbell was a golfing buddy of yours too. Oh, yeah. Glenn, Glenn was a good player. I mean, Glenn was Glenn and I were about the same handicap. and But he was the best short game player, uh, amateur I'd ever met in my life. From 60 yards in, he was as good as any pro. Well, if, if Glenn could play golf like he played the guitar, he'd be something else. Oh, no, he was, you know, even when he had Alzheimer's at his worst, mm. he could pick up a guitar and play better than anybody. I, yeah. I remember one time I was teaching uh, uh, Eddie Van Halen how to play golf. He came into Phoenix and all this, and he says, the real reason I came in, he says, I want to know if you could get me a guitar, guitar lesson with Glenn Campbell, Eddie Van Halen trying to get a guitar lesson with Glenn. And I went, yeah, I think I can arrange that. And you arranged? Well, I, I, I don't know if they ever did it, but I, I, I certainly got in touch with him. And Glenn says, oh, yeah, Eddie's a good guy, man. He can play. That kid can play. And I said, well, I want you to teach him something, you know. 
<laughs> now, I think probably the most surreal photo in rock history is probably you and Salvador Dali. And oh. then I sort of Googled it the other night. I had an image in my head of that famous one with he's leaning one way, you're the other, kind right. of head to head. Right. I think Rolling Stone ran it. But there's a whole series of you and Dali. Oh, yeah. We spent a lot so, of time. Yeah. yeah I've, I've got to ask you, given he's long gone now and he's one of the great surrealist masters, you what was the to, connection? You have to understand think, that, that uh, Dennis Dunaway, our bass player, and Glenn and myself, we were all art majors. And right. so our hero before the Beatles was Salvador Dali. He was our, you know, our all in all, because nobody was as bizarre as him. And he was maybe the greatest oil painter of anybody when it came to, to super realism. And then yeah. if you add in his surrealism and, and the amount of things he did. Well, he called up at some point and he said, I, uh, his people called up and said, doing a... Um, hologram but it's a moving hologram and this is back in 1972 73 something like that where nobody knew what a hologram was you know and i said well what is it and he said well he wants you to be the model in it because he saw the show and he saw our show as surrealism whereas groucho mark saw it as vaudeville you know uh so we did we i spent about a week working with him on this uh on this hologram and uh by far the most bizarre human being I've ever met in my life. You know, just every, every day was like, what? <laughs> you know, because he was just so out there. Uh, but he was great, you know. But he was just really, he, he surprised you every day with something new, you know. Obviously, like yourself, he must have had a tremendous work ethic. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he was very serious about what he was doing. He, you know, it, it, the world was basically dollies. He was just playing with it. You know, and uh, and so, you know, whatever came out of his brain ended up on canvas or in a sculpture or something, you know. That's pretty inspirational, isn't it? Oh, it was great. I mean, one of the high points of my life was the fact that I got to actually work, do an art piece with Salvador Dali. Now, I know you have to go, and I'm really grateful for your time chatting today. It's been wonderful. And just one last question. You mentioned Groucho before, Groucho Marx. Yeah. I know you guys had a great connection there. Did he just see the vaudeville in you? Did he see you as part of that Hollywood tradition? Yeah, he did. He saw something that was that was that that he connected with. He didn't really connect with rock and roll that much, but mm. he saw our show. He saw that every single song had a bit in it. You know, it might be funny. It might be a little scary. It might be this or that. But every song had a visual bit, which is what vaudeville is, right? And yeah, the next thing I know, here we are, shock rock, right? They were calling it shock rock. The whole audience is shocked by what we're doing, just shocked. And you look over to the side, and there's Jack Benny and George Burns and Groucho. And then the next night, you look over on this side, and it's Fred Astaire, Mae West, and, you know, and he brings all the old vaudevillians in to see the show. And they're not in the least bit shocked. Because, yeah, fantastic. You know, George Burns is going, 1923, Gracie and I uh, worked with a guy with a snake like that. And, uh, you know, he didn't use a guillotine, but uh, it, and it was just matter of fact to them. So they, I was the only rock and roller in the Friars Club. They, they put me in the Friars Club with all these comedians because they figured, well, I'm vaudeville and I'm comedian. You know, 
Thank you so much for your time today. It's been so great. And you've proved rock is not dead. It's not even resting. It's oh, happening. Oh, not it's, at all. You know, Gene, all Simmons, Gene Simmons, you know, with the, with the line, rock and roll is dead. And I said, well, then why is my record number one? It's a hard rock record. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alice. Okay, man. Thank you. We'll get to Australia as soon as we can. I understand you guys are, are I've already had my two shots. Most of people in America are, uh, will be vaccinated by the middle of summer. So I'm thinking that we'll be on tour middle of summer. Please come back. I love seeing your shows. Oh, look, I can't wait to get back there. And I'm going to bring the vampires back there also. Oh, that'd be unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, man. Thank you. Take care then. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for joining us on Sony Music Presents Time to Talk this week. How great was Alice Cooper? Just fantastic to get him on the show. Um, I love not only hearing his stories, but also hearing him talk about the people he's met. The album Detroit Stories is out now, so be sure to check it out. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends about it. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and I'm looking forward to seeing you back here next time for some more Time to Talk. <laughs>